with us here today. He is all the way down from Remington, Indiana. He drove down this morning, so he had an early morning, early start, but we're grateful that he's here. He, of course, is the executive director of Midwest Church Extension, so he is uh, my boss, my mentor, my friend, and we're delighted to have you here with us to share the word today. Good morning. Again, it's good to be with you today. Glad to be able to share in this special day. Ah, thank you. Appreciate it. The uh, uh, opportunities like today that are here are those that are uh, uh, one and dones in a life of a church. There's opportunities that come. There, there, there are things that happen that are celebrated. The anniversary services, you do that once a year. Birthday services, that kind of thing. But you only have one journey. Uh, in, in your journey, you only have one day, like today, a Charter Membership Sunday, where you established your first membership. Uh, in the different places that I go to, the participation of ministry that I'm part of, where I, I go out and I speak on behalf of Midwest Church Extension, and I, uh, I speak as guest in different churches, you can imagine the kind of the scope or the range of churches and their where they are in their life, sometimes they're churches that are approaching somewhat their, their, their later years of existence. They're kind of on the downside and in decline, and, and, uh, or they're churches that are just well-established. They continue to have generational ministry. And I meet all kinds of people, and it's very interesting to meet individuals where they've been part of a church for 40, 50, 60, maybe that many years. And to learn that their parents or they themselves as children signed the charter that was the original uh, establishment of their church. I remember preaching a number of years ago uh, in a church in Chicago where a lady was, a very elderly lady, was playing the organ. And the pastor leaned over to me and he says, that lady has been playing the organ for 80 years in our church. Can you imagine that? I said, when did she start playing? When she was five? He said, no, she was in her early teens. And so here that lady had been playing the organ that long in one church. First of all, to find one person in one single church for that long uh, is, is a testament to her, her constancy to begin with because that is very rare. Even, and I'm not even saying that critically. It's just we have a mobile society. People live and move in different places. Very rarely do children grow up in a church and stay in a church throughout their adult lives. And, uh, but she had, been, she had done that, and it was kind of an exciting thing. Uh, so we, I do get the opportunity to see some of those things and to meet those kind of people. And, and uh, one day in glory, we'll get to celebrate and learn just how much more godly and how many more rewards than they'll have than Henry will ever get. <laughs> and uh, just a, it's an amazing thing to think about. And today is, is that day for you where you are establishing your membership and you're ratifying your constitution and putting it into place so that you will have an operational order for your ministry. Uh, these are one and dones. These are days that you'll never have again. It's just that's the way it is. It's, those are things that happen in our lives where they are the, that moment in time. And so it is indeed something to celebrate with you today. I want to start this morning's message with a little interactive poll. This is, this is the audience participation part of the message. And here's my question. When you hear the word precious... What comes to mind? And Lord of the Rings doesn't count, okay? <laughs> 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 
Just making sure before anyone wants to go there. <laughs> when you think of the word precious, <laughs> what comes to mind? What are some of the things? Your children. Oh, that's, uh, I got bullet points, and those are that's in there. I'm going to count that, let's count that family, because there are a lot of different nuances to that. But yes, that's one. Okay, what else? Okay, children. Yep, your car. And that's her name, right? Her name is Precious. I just, it just clicked. How about that? All right, what else? <laughs> okay, there you go. Oh, you're precious. Oh, okay, now I've got you. Okay. It took a while to land, but it got there. Yeah, we, we had to do a fly around, but we got, the, we got there. Okay, very good. Yes, okay. <laughs> An heirloom, okay, yeah, all right, sure, absolutely, yeah. What's that? Gold. Gold, yep, yep, things that are like gems and whatnot, right? Um, how about things like health, precious health? I mean, that's, uh, let's face it, those of us who have had our journeys up and down, you know, you can, when you're feeling good, you know, those are mo- moments you kind of precious in your life. Um, ministry, home, friends, you know, these are things that we would say is precious, but I think we all know what number one would be, right? The Lord Jesus, amen? I mean, that's so much that's true. And there are a lot of times in Scripture when that idea of preciousness, whether it's with the word particular or with a cognate of some kind uh, or a, a synonym of some kind, that is brought out. One of the things that I've been engaged to for the last, really a last number of years, ever since I was sick about seven years ago, I've been engaged in, in just a, a, a long-range, uh, all-encompassing study of ecclesiology, which is just a long, fancy word for what does the Bible say about the church, okay? And the, that is something that is classed as precious in the sight of the Lord, and in scriptures, in terms of Scripture, preciousness is connected with it. Here are some verses that would talk a little bit about that. Ephesians 5, 25 says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Now, I know the words precious is not there, but you can see the idea in that statement. First uh, Peter 2, verse 9, here we go. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then the verse we've said today, uh, a few times actually, you are the body of Christ and members in particular. This, This thing called the church it's very precious in the sight of God. Ephesians verse, it's the object of Christ's love. It's something for whom he gave himself and shed his blood. That's, that's a commitment. That's a, that is a preciousness. First Peter, it, it's uniquely identified. We're a, a, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, a peculiar people. Uh, it, it's the very body of which he himself is the head. You look at all these descriptions, there's, there's both intimacy, but there's also intensity. It, it's, it's one thing to, to, to feel the closeness of, of intimacy, but it's another to feel the zeal and the passion of, of the intensity of preciousness. 
And they're both involved in the way that the, the Christ sees the church. There's intimacy because this expression of a loving bond is there between Christ and the church. But there's intensity because of the remarkable depth to which that bond extends. And the preciousness of the church is one of the reasons that we as believers today, we need to understand that, that God has chosen the church as central to his plan for this present age. You know, what God is doing in this world today revolves around the reality that this is the church age, that, that, that God is busy calling out from this world those who will, be, who will put their faith in Christ by obeying the gospel, and, and that that church is being prepared as the body and the bride of Jesus Christ. That is God's agenda for this present age. And, and so in order for that plan to be fulfilled, God has, has commissioned believers. He's commissioned you and me, uh, 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 those of us who are already part of the church, to be his witnesses, to be his voices, these messengers proclaiming the gospel so that lost souls can hear the offer of everlasting life, salvation from sin, and then come to know God by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Because when those souls do, the Lord adds them to his body, the church. And that work has been going on since the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and it will continue right up until the close of this age with the rapture, when after the last church age soul gets saved, after he accepts Christ, at some point soon after, the trump of God will sound, the Lord himself will descend from the heavens, he will meet his bride in the air, and together they will return to glory in that place to, in, to that place that he's already gone to prepare for us. Now it's very interesting, it's curious to realize that this matter of the church as central to God's plan for this age, it's something that the New Testament says is actually a mystery. It's a mystery because in comparison to the Israel of the Old Testament. If you ever read through your Bible, Old, through, Old Testament through the New Testament, uh, any common sense reading of it will clearly acknowledge that the chosen status that was true for Israel as a nation, as a people, um, itself is an identification that's very different from the church of the New Testament. The church is never once spoken of in the Old Testament. You never see it at all. Because the first mention of it is actually in the text that we're going to be looking at today in Matthew 16. And that means that as far as the written record of Scripture is concerned, I mean, the Lord's disciples, when they heard these words, the ones in Matthew 16, they were being introduced to a program for the very first time. And so today, I want us to look at those verses in Matthew 16 uh, examine them to understand their significance, because when we do, we'll be reminded and hopefully renewed to make and keep ourselves available, engaged to God's agenda for this age. And so, as you can see today, my topic is building the church, building the church. Now, our outline for note-taking is going to be very, very simple today. Uh, so, I, I want you to know it's not going to be complex. We're going to make note of three main points. The foundation the framer, and the formation. That's your three main points, the foundation, the framer, and the formation. So let's go ahead and start 
with that today. Let's look at item number one, the foundation, the foundation, the building the church. Notice in the verses, actually, let me go ahead and read those for us if I can. Let's, going to start, uh, let's start in verse 13. It says, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Well, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias or Elijah, and some Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he saith unto them, But whom say ye? That I am. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto, also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Jesus starts his statement to Peter, the leader of the disciples, and he says, upon this rock I will build. The foundation idea, of course, is being upon this rock, this rock. Now, the question comes up, well, what rock is that? You know, what is the, this rock? And that has been asked and answered different ways, depending on one's theological persuasions. Um, let's face it, there is a whole system of Roman doctrine that is out there, and it has long maintained that the rock is Peter himself. And the reasons they say so is that it's premised on the meaning of Peter's name. Peter is Petros in the Greek, and it literally means rock, and so they argue that since Peter is the one being addressed in the statement, Jesus clearly establishes that the church that will come will begin with that man. Peter is the man. And so in this way, Roman doctrine argues for Peter being the first pope, and then they argue for the primacy of every Roman bishop in succession afterwards. And then others would not necessarily argue for Peter's primacy as pope, but they still argue that Peter is the rock because he was the leader of the church to come. He was the first evangelist at Pentecost. However, simple textual analysis, along with Peter's own epistles, what he says about it, shows that the rock, the rock of foundation is clearly something other than Peter. Okay? What do we look at? Let's take an examine here of this text itself. If, we, if truly Jesus was making Peter the rock, the foundation rock, all he would have had to say is this, on you I will build my church. Okay? He would, have met, he would have dispensed with any mystery, no cryptic speaking. It would have just been straightforward as that. He's talking to Peter. He wouldn't have just said, on Peter, I will build my church. No, he would say, on you, I will build my church. You're going to be the man. Well, obviously, that's not what he meant to begin with, or he would have said that. Secondly, notice that the two words, Peter and rock, they are related, but they're not equivalents. Petros, or Peter, is the masculine word, and it was the name, and that means the word rock, 
But the word rock itself is not masculine. It's petra, which is a feminine gender, not a masculine. Now, one of the things that's true about Greek grammar is that all, any nouns and reference to nouns, they all have to have agreement. And one of the things in which they have to agree is in their gender assignment. Okay, if petros is masculine, then anything that refers to them also must be masculine in order for it to be connected. That's just a standard rule of Greek grammar. But if you're going to pair up a masculine and a feminine word in spite of the culture today, in Greek grammar, you can't get away with that. Okay? It doesn't work. Okay? So it can't mean that they're the same thing. Nothing else, though, is really identifiable as feminine in this verse or in the previous one, so we don't have immediate textual clarity. So it requires that we go then to the context, and that we do by going into the lead-in verses. We see that Peter just made this confession in answer to a question posed by the Lord. What did he ask? What are people saying about me? Who are they saying that I am? Well, some thought that you're John the Baptist, revived from the grave. You're Elijah, returned from heaven. You're Jeremiah, somehow restored to life. But then he says, but who do you say that I am? What do you think about my identity? It's Peter that said the great confession. Jesus, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And only then does Jesus pronounce this blessing on Peter for coming to that understanding, and he came to it by the hand of God showing it to him. So what is the foundation? It's not Peter as Petros. What the foundation is, is the identity of Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. That is the rock. That is the foundation. And even Peter's epistle, when he says Jesus is the chief cornerstone, this is what he says. I think I put that on your screen here for you to see it. Yes. Watch what Peter calls, says about this foundation. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him, I've inserted the words on who? On the chief cornerstone, shall not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, he's the stone which the builders disallowed. The same be made the head of the corner. Who is the foundation? Who is the rock, according to Peter? It's Jesus Christ. It's the fact that he is the Son of God. The church is not founded on an apostle. The church is not founded on a disciple. The church is founded on the Son of God. We know from our New Testaments that Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus is the name which is above every name. Paul would tell to the Corinthians, other foundation can no man lay that that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the rock. He's the foundation. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, sent into the world to accomplish the mission established by the Father to redeem men from sin. And those that are redeemed then are bonded together as one body, the church. Man cannot know God apart from knowing Jesus Christ. The truth of the incarnation is that Jesus is God-made flesh, God-made in fashion as a man. Jesus even said to Philip, if, you've seen the, if, you, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. You've seen, you've seen God, if you've seen me. The Apostle John said that no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. You want to see God? See Jesus. That's it. That's, who, that's what this is. To know God, to be part of his plan for this age, to be part of his body and bride, the church, you must acknowledge Jesus as the Savior, the Christ, the Son of God. Without that truth undergirding it, the, truth, the church would be nothing more than a human institution, some religious construct. 
The world is filled with those kinds of creations already, but they are counterfeits to the one and true living God. But you have to remember, in order for there to be counterfeits, there has to first be the real thing, the reality. You don't have counterfeits if you don't have a reality first. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is telling us he's the rock. He's the person of Christ as the Son of God, and he's the one upon which the church's body is being built. May we always remember this day as well as all the days that going forward that the mission for this church is not to meet our collective needs for companionship. I know that's important, and it's part of what you do, but it's not the main reason you're here. It's not to have a center for activity or to have a sense of belonging. Again, those are important matters, but the primary reason for this church's existence is to declare the person of Jesus Christ to the souls of Jeffersonville, Indiana, and to the surrounding area. You are here to let your immediate world know that the Father has sent the Son, Jesus Christ, into this world to show that He is God, He exists, just showing them that God is the Creator and that God desires all men to come to a saving relationship with Him. That can only be done by acknowledging the identity of Jesus Christ. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And in that acknowledgement, receive the gift of life by trusting in Christ for redemption from sin. And so like today, as you are joining together as redeemed souls, collectively you're providing that witness all along the way, encouraging and helping each other to follow Christ together. And that's part of what we're doing today. The identity of Jesus confessed by Peter as the Christ, that is the foundation of the church, the foundation. Now, let's continue on and look at our second point today. Our second point today is this, the framer, the framer. And for this, we look to the next few words of verse 18, the words, I will build, I will build. Peter, he said, thou art Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So I'm looking at I will build to see the framer. If you look in the original, those three words are actually just one in Greek. So we're really going to have to parse it out to get our three points here. Uh, it takes three words in English to bring out the significance. So we're just going to use those three words as our outline. I, and then will, and then build. Okay? Real simple. Let's talk first about the I. Now, it, it, it's not an uncommon experience for Christians, uh, students, scholars, churches, whatever, to pursue book resources in the Christian marketplace to read the stories, experiences, and counsel of experts in local church ministry. There are all kinds of of churchy books that are out there, how to go about doing things, how to, how, here's this church and how I did it, okay? There are all kinds of testimonial books that are out there. Church networks are out there, organizational associations, ministry groups, they've all got catchy names, they're media-driven identities. They are publishing regularly on church life, building local ministry, and related topics, and a lot of them are really good. A lot of them can be a very good help to us. They're biblically-based resources, but in, in the interest of transparency here, many, to be truthful, are not good books. In the end, no matter if one is considering a reliable resource or not, the thing that must be remembered and is so easily forgotten is this. Jesus is the framer of the church. 
Now, when books outside, them, outside the market, in the marketplace will admit that, you probably got a good book and something you can use. But Jesus is the framer of the church. He is the one that does the building. And no person rightly serves the body of Christ without his authority and enablement. So I don't care if it's the most skilled person. I don't know if they have the most winsome personality. I don't know if they're the most possessed of funding capacity. All those people, they cannot do one thing to build the church without Jesus Christ. He alone is the architect. He's the planner. He's the plant manager. He's the supplier. And he's the enabler. And he told the disciples that were about to become apostles on the night before his crucifixion, he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And then said this, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Okay? It's all about him. <laughs> it was true that night. It's true every step of the early church in the New Testament. It's every bit as true even today. Jesus is the church's framer and no one else. Because anyone who thinks otherwise, that he's the answer to a church's growth, or if anyone develops a mindset that invests all their hopes in another person to be that answer, well, I'm just going to go trust this media personality. Well, you have that mentality. It runs fully contrary to this clearly stated reality. Because the truth is, is no single church can save anybody. I never met a church that could save a soul. They don't have that capacity. No, you don't have that ability. Pastors can't solve every problem. They can't resolve every dilemma. MCE, Midwest Church Extension, we can't plant every single church. Okay, but it's not possible. Uh, we can't rescue every broken one. That's, it's not within us to be able to do those things. What building to be done is only accomplished when the Lord is the one that's working to frame his body through the labor force represented that's in each one of us. As he gifts us with spiritual qualities, as he enables us with physical abilities to contribute, he's still the one that engineers each one of us together so that the outcome of ministry progress is exactly what he planned for. Now, I'm not saying we go disengaged because we're the instruments that he uses. But the bottom line is, is he's the one that's moving us and using us in all those ways. Without Jesus, our framer, we can do nothing. Okay? He's the I. I. Now, notice as well, it says he will. He will build. Now, that word there, will, it, it conveys the tense of the original term. And in this case, it's in the future tense, Right? I will do something. And, of course, the church wasn't in existence at that point. He's speaking to Peter and the disciples. And so he's naturally going to refer to something that's about to take place or to take place in the future from the time that he makes the statement. But more significant is the use of the future when it's joined to the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and the fact that it says later here in that same verse that what he builds is going to withstand the gates of hell. That's an interesting statement. And what does that mean, or why is that significant to the will? Well, if you keep those facts in mind, the future tense then carries the idea that this framer is indeed going to build his church. It's one thing to say, I will build my church. And, he's, and then it's another thing to say, I will build this church. You hear the determination that's involved in that. You hear the certainty that's involved in that. And that is the idea behind this will. The future tense carries the idea that it is indeed going to happen and nothing is going to stop him from the work that he determines to be done. Even the gates of hell will not stop it. 
wow, I will build my church. <laughs> That's what's the idea here. This is taking place. It's assurance. What the framer wills is going to happen. That is pretty awesome. And it forces us to ask and then hopefully answer a question. We have to reckon with an issue. If that's going to happen, then where is the variable? Well, the variable actually comes with us. Will we or won't we be part of that project? Take it to the bank that Jesus is going to do what he determines to do. So if he says that the church, his body, will be framed, that means that everybody to be saved and add to the body of the Christ will be. So the only variable is for us to consider whether or not we're going to be involved or even be usable instruments in the process. That's the only question. I mean, we, Paul even said something to this effect with Timothy. He said, in a great house, there, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but there are vessels of wood and earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. And if a man will therefore purge himself from these, he will be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet or fitting for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. And so each of us needs to be usable, honorable vessels. You see, when I fall short of God's expectation for my life, I'm threatening my work. And I'm threatening the work of those around me because I'm not sustaining my state of readiness, my preparedness. And each one of us must personally submit ourselves to the inspection of the Lord to do whatever vessel cleaning or housekeeping is needed to be done, purging ourselves from that which stains and in turn be purified or fit for the master's use. And that's the idea with will. I will build, build my church. That's the verbal aspect. Remember, those are all three concepts, but there's one word in the original. That's the operative element, the active element. The original word for build comes from two words, which means house and dome, like the dome of a house or the roof of a house. Um, if you've ever done construction, one of the goals, one of the, uh, the staging goals you want to do, well, we want to get that, that project under roof today. You ever hear those terms? Okay, to so be under roof. Or you're speaking about progressing the building to the point where you're, you're, you're starting now to minimize the, the, the impact of the elements. Uh, to say that now, oh, the, the next stage is we've got it enclosed. Okay, now you get it enclosed. Now you're really protecting from the elements. Well, those are the ideas behind the word here of building. To work as a house builder, but also with the idea of making some recognizable completion in its view. And this is the program of God for this age. Jesus as the framer of the church. He's energizing all of us as his labor force so that, he, so that what he wills to be built as the edifice of the church, the temple of the Holy Spirit, the tabernacle for the light of the gospel, he, he, he wants it to happen. He wants it to continue until that project reaches its completion. Paul described that completion as the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And therefore I say to us with, with no sense of rebuke or sarcasm, we need to get with the program. That's what, this, is the, this is the program of God for today, so let's get with that program. His agenda that he, through his son Jesus, has engineered as the church's framer. Uh, very simple terms, let's build. I know we're establishing your foundation today, we're, we're chartering your members, but this is just the beginning. Let's, let's build and see what it is that God's going to do to grow his ministry through us here in Jeffersonville. 
And then the last point for this morning. Number three is the formation. The formation. I will build my church. My church. This is what Jesus is constructing. This is the product of his agenda. This is the end game that he has planned for this age. He's speaking my church. The church possessed by and belonging to Jesus Christ. What needs the rock of Jesus' identity as its foundation? What is it that he is framing as the days march on? It is his church. So let's start with that idea. Let's start with the idea of the, of the church and talk about that for a minute. It's a very common word, word that we've been kind of throwing around a little bit today or related to it, the word ecclesia. Ecclesia, uh, that's the root behind those fancy terms, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiastical, things related to the church. The word ecclesia literally means an assembly of called out ones. And therefore, biblically, it's talking about how all believers from the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2 through the rapture that's discussed in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, every saved person, doesn't matter where they are or doesn't matter how they land at any point in the history between those two, the, those two bookends, if they're redeemed from sin, they've been newly born again, made new creatures, they are added to the body of Christ. They are the church. And every person that gets saved, that's another soul, another member closer in preparing the church as a bride for the bridegroom. I mean, think about the impact of leading someone to faith in Christ. It changes that person's life forever. It takes him out of the world of sin, places him into a new life following after Jesus. It, it grants him eternal life because instead of now suffering for eternity in the judgment of the lake of fire, he's given his very own place in the eternal presence of God. I mean, this is what it is to see someone get saved. But another thing that happens, it also it contributes to moving the dial of history one moment closer to the time when Jesus will descend from his place in heaven to receive his bride to himself. We're part of that program. I'm not saying we hasten that day. I'm not saying that God has a day already set, but every time we lead someone to Christ, he moves that day closer. No, I'm just saying that he's now completing the project that is calling out the body of those from this world to be his bride. And that is the church, those that are called out and unto himself. But then notice there's a possessive attached to it, and we'll finish with this. That possessive is the word my, my church. It's a simple word, nothing loaded here that you don't already recognize. It's reminding us that the church is the personal, precious possession of Jesus Christ, that, who, that one who is the son of the living God. I don't want to be, sound too silly here, but... Uh, picture an engaged man and a engaged woman. These are two souls who have promised their love, their souls, their lives to one another. And as an engaged couple, they set a date, a date when they're going to come to formalize their union. And so all of those days are leading up to that grand wedding, and they're spent with the anticipation. Well, now the day arrives. It comes for the ceremony to take place. And the bride, who is adorned in white, she presents herself. The groom is standing at the altar, awaiting her arrival. She's walking up the aisle, and she thinks, just looking solely at him, she doesn't even see the rest of the crowd or the rest of the room. She's thinking, I get to spend my life with that Adonis. 
And he's at the altar looking at her. He sees no one else. And she says, oh, that vision of Venus that's coming to me is mine. (laughs) And everyone else in attendance, they're, they're the witnesses. They're the celebrants. They're talking about the love that's going to be shared between the two and and that thou belongs to each other and no one else. And their mind just filters everything through this unbreakable bond that's going to be said in my husband. My bride, my church. Jesus declares that the whole collective of believers is my church. And, and that's the kind of love, that's the kind of preciousness, it's that kind of possessive view with which he sees the church. It, it, it's fully appropriate, therefore, for Paul to describe the church as the bride of Christ. I mean, even in the Gospels, that, that illustration of the loving perspective of Christ for the church is given. Because John the Baptist was actually asked one time if, if he was jealous about the increased following of Jesus while his number of disciples were diminishing. And John the Baptist said with sincerity, he says, He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, my joy is fulfilled. I mean, John was the preparer of the way. He was the voice in the wilderness. What did he rejoice in? He rejoiced to promote following Jesus Christ because he knew his role. He knew his place. And his joy was thusly fulfilled. It wasn't his church. It wasn't John the Baptist's church. It's Jesus' church. It's, Jesus said, it's my church. Paul even talked about this kind of joy. He told the Thessalonians, what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? You are our glory. You are our joy. He told the Corinthians that they would be his rejoicing in the day of the Lord Jesus. What what he is saying in those statements is that there's going to come a day when we're all going to walk up and see Jesus on his throne. We're going to stand in his presence, and I'm going to present these people that I won to you, Jesus, and I'm presenting them to you. Here they are. Here's your bride. That's the role that we have in bringing people to Christ. The gospel bearer is going to behold the Lord He's going to stand next to the souls that he led to faith in Christ, and he's going to present them with joy to the Lord. Now, to whom do those people belong? Were those Paul's converts? Paul was the instrument of their conversion, the message bearer for their conversion, but who do they belong to? Jesus Christ. My church. That's what he says. So who will those persons be for us? Will it be our loved ones? Will it be our parents? Our spouses, our children, our grandchildren? Will it be our neighbors, our co-workers? Will it be the townspeople of Jeffersonville among whom you dwell and live out your lives? We can chronicle our past ministry and we can know. Sometimes we can't even know who it will be. There have been times where I've actually found out someone came to Christ during a message that I preached and I had no idea it happened until they came forward and said something about it. But this is what we are to do. This we can know and do. We can be prepared. We can be at the ready to speak, to make sure we have an answer to, for the hope that is in us, to share, our heart, share from our hearts the love of Christ through the work of Calvary and victory over the grave. If we are believers, then we are automatically witness to the saving power of the gospel by virtue of being touched our, ourselves. 
So we need to be like John the Baptist. We need to be like Paul. We need to take joy in bringing lost ones to Christ so that on his wedding day, on that grand ceremony, there's going to be that union of his church fully adorned in white, like Paul says, spotless and without blemish, complete and whole to dwell in his love forever. Upon this rock, I will build my church. What a great text. That's what it is. It's followed with this incredible promise, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm not going to crawl into that one. I just want you to know that that statement is a promise from Jesus Christ that assures us as believers that we need to have against a world that seems to prevail all the time. We look at our culture. We look at the winds that they get all the time. I draw a two-part conclusion when I'm just looking at that in my weak moments. I can honestly tell you our world has never needed Christ more than it does today. (laughs) And yet, our world has never been as hardened against Christ as much as it is today. Should I be discouraged? No. I remind myself that it's Jesus' church. He will build it. And nothing, not CNN, not the American culture, not the conflict that we see all around us, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. Not going to keep him from doing what he said he will do. So regardless of the hardness of the roads that we have ahead of us, let's press forth to engage in the program. Let's keep touching new lives because we are the church. We're founded, we're framed, and formed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the events of this day. I pray that this challenge, this reminder and the doctrine of the church and what it means to us and how it pertains to us, especially on this day when the membership of Pillar Fellowship is being chartered together and they're, being, they're ratifying their constitution, their order on how they're going to conduct themselves in the ministry of the gospel here in Jeffersonville. I pray, Father, that you will help them to to see the seriousness and the wonder it is to be a part of your program. I pray that these are things that we can truly celebrate this day. And I ask your blessing now as we continue now with our service. In Jesus' name, amen.